This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by United Health Group, a diversified healthcare company that includes United Healthcare, which provides healthcare coverage, and Optum, which provides technology-enabled health services. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The coronavirus pandemic has underscored the critical role of the family physician and primary care providers in our health system. Doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers in hospitals and emergency rooms have responded with bravery and resilience to the pandemic. Less visible have been thousands of primary care and family physicians who are the first point of contact for patients when they develop symptoms. In this episode, you'll hear from YouTube star and primary care physician, Dr. Mike, and former American Medical Association President, Patrice Harris. Both will address the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on primary care and family physicians. Let's listen. Well, good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, author of the Health 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post, and I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Mike Varshavsky. He's a primary care physician and a popular YouTube personality with millions of subscribers. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Dr. Mike. Thank you so much for having me, Paige. That was a very emotional video for me to watch as I've seen uh, how COVID-19 has impacted primary care and family medicine physicians. It's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow, but I'm proud that we're having this conversation today. Well, and I want to I want to go back to the spring for a minute because I remember talking to primary care doctors at that time. And of course, during the widespread lockdowns, many of them had to to shut down non-emergency care. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you? And I know a lot of doctors also took a really big financial hit in in over those couple of months. So what was your experience like? You know, it was a challenging time for us on many fronts. Obviously, financially, one, uh, that means doctors were losing their jobs. They were losing their ability to pay their rents. But I think uh, the thing that struck us most is we lost the ability to see our patients in person. And that's what makes family medicine and primary care truly a special field. The ability to give someone a handshake, the ability to sit in a room with a patient and feel what they're going through, help them get through those struggles. And when you lose that connection, that doctor-patient relationship, it makes for a very difficult scenario of how to help that individual. In the beginning, uh, in March time, there was a lot of stress for us in the primary healthcare space because patients were coming in with what looked like to be traditional viral symptoms, but we weren't able yet at that moment to identify, was this COVID-19 or something else? So we were there placing our lives on the line, our staff, our patients, and we're trying to figure out the best way to help our patients. And we had to pivot incredibly quickly in order to maintain the integrity of our practices. So what ended up happening? There was a major shift in the March, April timeframe to telemedicine. We were trying to upgrade our offices, trying to upgrade our, our clinical workflows so that we were able to continue delivering care in a meaningful way, despite the fact that we weren't able to see our patients sitting in front of us in our offices. What happened as a result? Well, primary care visits dropped. In fact, there was an article recently in the Journal of uh, American Medical Association that said despite the huge surge in telemedicine visits, we had a drop of 21% in overall visits, a drop of 50% of blood pressure measurements, and a drop of 30 to 40% of cholesterol checks. So while we're doing our best as family medicine providers to care for our patients, telemedicine cannot replace the one-on-one individual visit with their primary care doctor. 
Well, and I wanted to ask you about that telemedicine. As you said, it's really increased, but what are the drawbacks to it? And, you know, especially for patients with complex needs, where does telemedicine not sufficient for treating them? I think telemedicine has a lot of room for growth, uh, not only from the utility of it, the fact that doctors can make use of it, but also in its technological capabilities. I would love to see more companies put investments in creating devices that patients can have in their homes, whereby we can listen to their hearts. We can improve the physical exam that we can do virtually, because right now that's the biggest shortcoming of it. When a patient comes into my office and I need to evaluate them for chest pain or abdominal pain or ear pain, I can do a proper physical exam. But through telemedicine, that's not feasible. So that's its number one shortfall. The second one is nothing will ever suffice or compete with a one-on-one -on -one individual visit with a patient in the room. You're able to read their body cues, uh, nonverbal communication. You're able to hug them if you see them struggling. And I think that human connection is lost through telemedicine. It doesn't mean telemedicine is bad or it's not going to be useful. I think there's a lot of utility for it, especially for complex care where patients might not need to travel two, three hours to get a consultation with the physician. So while I think it has absolute true drawbacks, I do think there's a huge future for telemedicine within family medicine. What, what's happening in your practice now? When did you see patients start to come back? And what, to what degree do you think they have fear or hesitation to come back for you know, preventive care, non-essential, non-emergency medicine? Within the last month, we're starting to see a higher volume of patients, um, but I still sense that fear. And I hope through our conversation today, Paige, we can ease that fear because we've made tremendous changes to our practices in order to make them safer for our patients. We've eliminated waiting rooms. We've cut down the times that the patients need to be in our offices. The way that they even travel through our offices have changed. We've made a one-way uh, workflow where patients enter through one door and continue on through the practice without ever needing to run into another patient. We've delegated uh, where patients go depending on the type of symptoms they're having. So we're triaging better. We're also doing temperature screens, which is not a foolproof method, but it's an added variable in order to keep patients safe. And finally, something that we all should be doing at home, we're having universal masking in our practices so that everyone is safe, not only patients, but staff as well. Well, and you make a good point about the changes at the doctor's office. I know when I've taken my own kids, it feels very different when you go. And, um, you know, certainly you can see those preventive measures in place. But even with those measures, are you worried at all that primary care physicians are going to have to go back to a little bit of what we saw last spring with fewer patients coming in uh, if we continue to see surges, uh, cases increase over the cold uh, winter months? My hope is not, uh, because the more patients prolong their care, meaning they delay care, uh, the more chronic it becomes, the more difficult to treat it becomes. Uh, now we're seeing cardiac cath labs playing catch up because patients were avoiding coming in for symptoms of chest pain. And I wanna urge everyone at home that if you're having uh, a level of anxiety or a symptom is bothering you, do not hesitate to call your primary care office. It doesn't mean that necessarily you'll be forced to come in or encouraged to come in. Perhaps we can have a conversation through telemedicine. Perhaps your complaint works well for that. For example, I've had plenty of patients who've had uh, skin issues that we can diagnose or at least triage through a telemedicine visit where I can see what's going on. They could tell me their history and we can decide what to do if they need to come in or not. So 
the future of family medicine right now is largely uncertain because we don't know what's about to happen in these flu months. But the one thing that we all can do is take some of the power back away from COVID-19 by doing what the CDC has been recommending from day one, wearing masks, socially distancing, uh, washing our hands frequently. And the final one that's also really important come flu season is getting a flu shot. Because with the amount of stress that hospital systems are gonna face with patients being diagnosed with COVID, the last thing we need are more patients getting sick, especially with symptoms that look quite similar to COVID-19. I know you live in New York City and you practice medicine in New Jersey, so you are really in the epicenter of everything during the spring. Can you describe a little bit of, of what you saw as a physician there during that time and how it affected you? It was a time of healthcare heroes. And I'm not talking about myself because I largely work in an outpatient practice. Uh, a lot of it was switched to telemedicine, so I was practicing from a computer just like this, safe at home. But the healthcare heroes, in Atlantic Health System, the ones that I work with day in and day out, the nurses, the CMAs, the patient care techs, the custodial staff, the engineering staff, those individuals were putting their lives on the line to adapt and pivot during one of the most stressful times that I can remember in my young career. I got to give a huge thank you to those individuals because there was a lot of uncertainty. The amount of mental health stress that they took on but continued to show up for work was absolutely incredible. In fact, there was a recent uh, survey done by the Primary Care Collaborative Institute where they said 50% of respondents were having a level of mental health burnout that they were putting to the side in order to take care of their patients. And while I think that's noble, I also think that it's going to lead to a lot of problems down the line for these healthcare physicians because they're not putting their mental health care first. And we need to talk about the mental health struggles that we're facing as physicians. We need to address it to make sure that we continue to be able to deliver the best care for our patients. I want to ask you a little bit about the obesity epidemic. Um, and this is, I feel like it's kind of flown under the radar a little bit during COVID, although we know that it's one of the biggest risk indicators for having serious COVID-19. And of course, this is, you know, an epidemic that our country has been struggling with for a really long time. And um, in many ways, we failed to fix it. But do you think that this pandemic is bringing attention to this problem um, and, and may help to put us on a pathway toward at least reducing the level of obesity in the US? I think it is and it isn't simultaneously because it is in that we're seeing those who have comorbidities of being obese, having a BMI that falls into the range of being obese or morbidly obese, having worse outcomes. So the research supporting the fact that losing weight will be beneficial to our patients is there and that's the benefit of it. However, I've also partnered with the uh, Harvard School of Public Health on a COVID-19 symptom tracker app. And what we've seen is through these surveys of, I believe they have over 4 million users, that people are snacking more, they're eating more, they're consuming more calories, likely because they're spending more time at home. They're also experiencing higher stress levels and we as humans tend to stress eat. Um, and also because we're home, we're walking less, we're taking less steps. So all of these things in combination, the stress, the amount of food we're eating, the lack of exercise, the gyms being closed, all of these things are contributing to possibly a worsening of the obesity epidemic. And while the evidence there is being given to us day in and day out that uh, having the comorbidity of being obese is not good for our health, the practical side of this situation is that it's likely to get worse before it gets better.
I know that you interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, near the beginning of this pandemic, um, and the video got close to 6 million views. How do you view your own role in trying to spread uh, medical, uh, reliable medical information during this pandemic? I think what we've all seen is a huge rise in misinformation, both online and in traditional media, whether it's coming from individuals, politicians, even some journalists. And me as a physician who educates patients in his office, I thought I could take this and do it on a larger scale and educate people on social media. In fact, I think it's the fear of being labeled unprofessional that's led evidence-based physicians to not be on social media. And as a result, we've seen misinformation absolutely thrive. It's gone uncontended. So what I've done is I've created a platform that's relatable, that gives honest evidence-based information. And over the last three years making this health content, we have over 700 million views. We have over 6 million subscribers that want unbiased information. They wanna learn more. And I think when you're honest and humble in your approach in delivering this healthcare message, people really listen. I think oftentimes uh, we get overconfident in our abilities as physicians, as scientists. And while it's important to show confidence and tell patients we're confident in what we're doing, we need to explain why we're confident or why there is a lack of confidence in order for them to follow along with our thinking. For example, in the beginning of this pandemic, we actually were not recommending universal masking because we thought it gave patients a false sense of security because it didn't protect them as much. And two, because we're experiencing a huge shortage in our own practices. So healthcare providers were at risk. And if the healthcare system broke, patients wouldn't be safe either. That being said, after more research came out and we saw those who were not experiencing symptoms actually spread this virus on a mega scale, we now instituted universal masking recommendations. And unless we explain the nuance of that conversation about why we said no in the beginning and yes now, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the trust of the general public. I think certain institutions have done that well, but I also have seen missteps even from major institutions like the WHO, who recently uh, was confusing uh, asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic cases, thereby really confusing the entire conversation to the general public about whether or not masks are effective. Well, and as you noted, there is, people sometimes don't know where to look. You're exactly right, because you want to be able to look to these agencies and trust them. But I know as a reporter, sometimes it has been really difficult as you're kind of moving through all of this, you're learning different things, you're hearing different messages from people to really be responsible in how you're communicating to the this to the public, what kind of advice do you, would you give to your viewers on how to determine what advice is reliable and what isn't, and kind of what questions to ask themselves as they're looking at this advice from various sources to determine whether it's reliable or not? I actually partnered with the United Nations uh, on a project called Take Care Before You Share. And it's a simple piece of advice that when you see some kind of claim put out there, whether it's a cure for COVID or uh, some kind of piece of information that's contrarian to everything you've heard thus far, just take the pause before you share it. And taking that simple five-second pause will really decrease the spread of that potential misinformation. Because too many times we see something completely extreme in a viewpoint and we become emotional. And in that moment, we share it and it becomes very popular and it goes viral. So if we're able to transition to that cognitive, the more rational thinking approach in our minds, just by taking that pause, that's gonna go a long way. 
also, you need to have a primary care physician, not only to take care of your health, to keep you healthy, to treat your potential chronic health conditions, but also to answer the questions that you may encounter while online. In fact, there's so much information thrown at us daily, I can't expect the average individual to be able to fact check all of these things. So trust the CDC, trust the WHO, but have your own personal physician with whom you have a personal relationship with as well. Well, and there are so many uh, online disinformation campaigns that we've seen. I'm thinking particularly, particularly of that pandemic conspiracy video that went around about Dr. Fauci a couple of months ago. I know that the tech companies have tried to crack down on some of this stuff. What do you think about that? Is that a good move or not? Yeah, I actually work hand in hand with the YouTube health team to try and figure out how to combat this level of misinformation from their side. And they're really passionate about making social media a safe place to share information, to encourage individual doctors, nurses, health professionals to share accurate information online. And we're constantly working on shifting the algorithms without necessarily censoring free speech, but limiting the reach of these organizations that are prone to sp spreading misinformation, that do not have any evidence behind what they're saying. You know, it's fine to have a contrarian opinion, but it has to be followed by a level of evidence before it's shared. So I think these uh, social media platforms absolutely play a role here in the spread of misinformation. But me as a, as a primary care doctor, I see a role here for myself as well. I did a video, 38 minute video, fact checking point by point that pandemic video. And it also has over two, I think maybe even 3 million views at this point where we give an honest, non-angry, non-emotional, explanation of why certain points are right and why certain points are wrong in that specific documentary. Well, and I know you make a lot of uh, YouTube videos about health. Do you have any reason to believe President Trump ever watches them? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I've definitely done videos combating misinformation in media and in politics. In fact, yesterday I had a video discussing how the entire President Trump diagnosis has been really hectic confusing and the steps that we can take to make it better. And part of it is not politicizing health information and health science. I think when we start politicizing it, it becomes confusing. The public loses its trust in our institutions. I've seen both the president tweet things on social media negatively about the FDA. I've also seen journalists and even my colleagues put out messages negatively about the FDA and the CDC. How can we expect the general public to trust these major institutions that they so desperately need to when we do have a COVID vaccine come out, when both sides are attacking them? I think we need to make these attacks accurate. We not, need to make them not personal, not politicized, and really stick to the facts without getting offended. Because getting offended, getting emotional is only gonna make the conversation more confusing, and lead the general public astray to make worse healthcare decisions. You mentioned President Trump's uh, being infected with COVID-19, and of course that has dominated so much of the conversation over the last couple of days. Um, there, uh, we had a report recently saying the thought now is that he contracted the virus on September 26th. 
uh, because, of course, the White House won't say when the president last received a negative test result. Um, if it's true that he first contracted, contacted the virus on the 26th, that would put him around day 12 of being infected and potentially out of the woods. But what's your take on all of that? Are you concerned about kind of the speculation around all of this? And conversely, are you worried about the White House's refusal to share both the information about testing and then also some specific indicators about Trump's health, such as how his lungs are doing in other indicators? I'm concerned about two things. Uh, first is how the White House has handled COVID-19 messaging. They haven't been clear with their recommendations about supporting the CDC, Dr. Anthony Fauci, recommending masks for everyone. In fact, the first thing that the President Trump did when he arrived back at the White House was remove his mask. And I think a lot of these are symbolic gestures that confuse the general public. There's many people who look up to President Trump, and I want to reach out to those people to recommend that they wear masks to protect themselves, their family members, and those around them. So I desperately would like to see the White House improve their COVID-19 messaging to not have President Trump come out and say, don't worry, we'll dominate COVID-19, there's nothing to be afraid of, because that's simply an inaccurate message. The truth is we shouldn't be afraid and we shouldn't be taking it lightly. We need to be alert to the facts, to the things that we can be proactive with and not be anxious. Because once we become anxious around COVID-19, that's when we start making bad decisions. In fact, when I started covering uh, COVID-19, one of my mantras was stay alert, not anxious. And I think it applies now more than ever. The next thing uh, that really sort of confuses the general public and bothers me in, in this situation as a primary care doctor is the fact that I can't get a piece of accurate information from the White House as to how the president is doing how fast we can get him back on his feet, whether or not he potentially have gotten other people sick. Like there's a specific timeline we follow with the CDC when it comes to contact tracing. And right now it just seems like it can't be done. There's also another point, Paige, I'd love to mention here is having physicians come on these national mainstream media sources and speculate about the president's health. They are not the president's physician. They are not in the room. They do not know the exact uh, diagnoses, the exact doses of specific medications that are being given. And a lot of it is guesswork. And not only is it guesswork, it's also unethical. So I'd love to see the president's personal physician come out and be more accurate with the timeline, with the medications, with the treatments, where we're going forward. But at the same time, I'd like to see less speculation from my fellow physician colleagues, because that leads to more confusion as well. Well, and you're absolutely right about the speculation uh, and, and indeed from a lot of medical professionals. Um, this has been a great conversation, but unfortunately we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things there. Dr. Mike Barsheski, thank you so much. It was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Paige. As always, stay happy and healthy. We have much more of our program coming up. I'll be back with Dr. Patrice Harris in just a few minutes. Please stay with us. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Washington Post. And I'd like to welcome our next guest, Dr. Patrice Harris, who is the immediate past president of the American Medical Association. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Harris. Well, thank you for having me, Paige. Good to be with you. 
I want to get into talking about primary care providers, but first I want to ask you uh, about uh, something that uh, came out yesterday. Uh, the New England Journal of Medicine published an unprecedented editorial condemning the Trump administration for its handling of the pandemic. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, Scientific American also in endorsed Biden. Should science, scientific publications be getting involved in politics in this way? We'll have to tell you that I am here today and, and speaking for the American Medical Association and uh, what we can do. Certainly each publication, each entity, in, each institution uh, should have the freedom of speech uh, to endorse um, whom they like. I uh, will tell you, of course, at the AMA, we are a nonpartisan organization. We are willing uh, to work with whatever partners and whomever we need to work with uh, to move us forward on, on health care. Uh, but undergirding all of that is the absolute critical need uh, to follow the science, all of our interventions, all of our decisions in a public health crisis or in our day-to-day -day practices uh, need to be guided by the science and the evidence. I spoke uh, to a national audience about that early on in this pandemic, and the words I said early in the pandemic continue to be true today. Talking about primary care providers, then former CDC director Tom Frieden wrote a piece saying primary care in the U.S. is in deep trouble as providers have had to uh, do the shutdowns during the spring. As we talked about, they've had to cut down on visits, uh, non-emergency visits. Uh, what's your advice to both primary care doctors at this time and then also patients who might be concerned about seeking care? Let me see a couple of overarching um thoughts here, Paige, because as I've been thinking, as we have been evolving through this pandemic, I've been thinking about two overarching concepts. And the first is infrastructure. Again, major fault lines have been exposed. We have not had a well-resourced, well-funded public health infrastructure. We have not had a well-resourced, well-funded mental health infrastructure. And we have not had a well-resourced and well-funded primary care infrastructure. And so we really need to focus on that going forward. But also um, there will be great gain as we get through to our transform normal. That's a term that I am using with making the dense connections between all three of those and really all of the other uh, determinants of health. But clearly uh, we must have a strong primary care infrastructure. And of course, appropriately, the public health measures that we had to take early on to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 did disrupt uh, primary care physician offices and thereby disrupted patient access. And that's why the AMA, along with a lot of other groups, were very uh, strong in our um, advocacy early on to make sure that physician practices had the resources they need to weather this storm. And, you know, I don't think uh, that traditionally people think of physician practices as small businesses uh, in communities that, that pay taxes, add to the local uh, tax base, employ other folks. And so it is very important, uh, and the AMA has been advocating for this all along, uh, that physician practices have the resources they need to weather this storm so that they can be there, uh, of course, as patients' needs continue to increase around issues other than COVID. 
Well, and to your point about primary care physicians being small businesses, I know that, as you know, we do have a shortage of physicians in this country. Are you worried at all that the increased pressures that primary care doctors are feeling, whether that's financial, whether that's health-wise, is actually going to, to worsen um, or otherwise affect the shortage of doctors in this country going forward? That is a huge worry. And Paige, you know, we were worried about that pre COVID uh, because of all the administrative and regulatory burden at the AMA. We've been doing a lot of studies uh, and one of our studies showed that for every hour uh, primary care spends with patients, uh, they spend two hours in administrative burden, prior authorization, all of the other things that actually detract uh, from good patient care. So that was the state of the state, if you will, pre-COVID, and now we have these additional pressures. So we are worried. Uh, we know that uh, physicians are retiring earlier. We know that we do not have the residency slots. We need to uh, make sure that we are keeping up um, from the federal government perspective. I know some states our uh, funding residency slots, but we need to make sure we are keeping up with the need and the demand, uh, as I talked about early on, of that primary care infrastructure. So that is a, it's a worry, it's been a worry, and we will continue to need to amplify and highlight uh, that concern. Now we can use innovation, right? Because, you know, there are short-term solutions and longer-term solutions. I was on a panel yesterday, talked about growing our own and starting in K through 12, if you will. That's certainly a longer-term solution. Funding for more residency slots, I would say, is potentially immediate, uh, a medium-term uh, solution. Uh, but right now, we can use innovation. We are using uh, telehealth. Uh, of course, we have to make sure that um, the regulatory burdens are lessened. CMS did reduce some of those regulatory burdens. We have to make sure there is pay parity. Uh, and of course, it's not just a CMS with Medicare, but also our commercial payers and then Medicaid, which as you know, and the audience knows, um, is a state and federal uh, partnership. So it really is going to take an all-in effort uh, looking at all of these issues uh, so that we don't worsen an already um, primary care physician shortage. What are you seeing on the ground uh, as, as you talk to primary care doctors? Um, do you see their kind of normal patient, uh, you know, load kind of resumed to nor normal pre-pandemic levels? Are people coming in at the same rate that they used to, or do they seem concerned? And, and do you think that there's a worry, is there a worry among primary care physicians that people are maybe unduly concerned about venturing out to the doctor's office and are consequently missing out on really important preventive care? So certainly based on the physicians that I've talked to, uh, people are not back up to their pre-pandemic levels. And, and that's a worry. And I know that the AMA and the AAP and others have partnered to make sure we get the word out uh, that offices are safe, right? They are safe uh, to come back. Physician offices are doing whatever they uh, can do to maximize uh, safety. I heard earlier your conversation, physician's offices are having, uh, you know, one way in the door. You know, I went to my physician and uh, my temperature was checked at the elevator. And again, uh, the seats were, were spaced. 
And so I do want everyone to know, because this has been a concern for several months, we of course are appropriately focused on COVID, but we cannot forget the other issues. We cannot forget chronic conditions, hypertension, diabetes. For the children, for a pediatric population, uh, we cannot forget that we need to make sure that their immunizations are up to date. So no, I'm hearing from my colleagues that we are not. Uh, back up to our pre-pandemic levels, but we do, of course, uh, and, and most um, offices are screening. There are some things that can be managed through telehealth, but there are uh, some issues that require an in-person uh, visit. And I know that people are worried and I'm not going to say it's undue uh, concern, it's appropriate concern, but what you do when you have appropriate concern is you develop an action plan. And I know that the physician community has developed action plans. Of course, it's based on uh, their particular practice. Uh, but we want everyone to know uh, that when you think you need to come into your doctor's office, please know that physicians practices around this country are doing all that we can uh, to mitigate the risk of spread of the novel coronavirus. Well, and we talked about, I know you mentioned um, conditions, uh, pre-existing conditions, one of them, of course, being obesity. And I, I asked this to Dr. Mike earlier, but I want to ask you too, because I think the issue of obesity has kind of flown under the radar a little bit, even though we know it's really tied to serious cases of COVID-19. Do you think that the pandemic is um, putting any more attention on this issue and, and might put us on a pathway to try to solve it? I actually agree with you. I have not seen a lot of attention paid to um, obesity as a risk factor, um, but we need to continue to get out that information. This is science and evidence-based information. Of course, obesity, of course, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, if you are immunocompromised. But I do want us to, when we think about obesity, and of course there are conversations that you have in the midst of a crisis, and then there are larger conversations that um, we will have to have as we get on the other side of the crisis. And I really want us to think about obesity. I have to really say um, all of these issues in a broader context, uh, because often, uh, Paige, when we think about these issues and they get um, lumped into the behavior category, and then the next um, uh, group of thoughts I hear tends to blame uh, people. And so I want to talk about choices. I have always talked about choices, but I remind us all that the choices we make are based on the choices that we have. And if we want our patients to make healthy, nutritious choices, and to um, have optimal ways of managing other weight, we need to make sure that those choices are equitably available. Um, those resources and supports are equitably available. And so we need to continue absolutely uh, to talk about obesity and all of the factors, uh, but we have to have these conversations in their fullest context. You mentioned me mental health as, as well, and particularly the mental health concerns of doctors. And I know you're a psychiatrist by profession. Do you feel like the system is doing enough to address the unique mental health needs of frontline, frontline workers during the pandemic and also just primary care doctors in general? Well, I know that the system and many systems, particularly those uh, hospitals um, who were hit hard early on in the pandemic, uh, many systems did quickly see 
uh, that this was an area that they had to address. And so we saw many uh, systems implement um, what I call routinized uh, wellness rounds. Um, you didn't have to ask for help. Um, there was proactive health available, help available. Um, certainly there were opportunities at the end of shifts uh, to debrief. Um, there were opportunities uh, to ask for support and help 24-7. Uh, so we are on our journey, right, as we address many of these issues. Again, I think we always have to start with where we were pre-COVID. Um, there are a lot of barriers. Again, we don't have time to talk about them all today, but there are a lot of disincentives uh, for physicians and other healthcare professionals to even ask for help, even questions on licensing um, questionnaires and, and certification exams. Um, I was actually, as you stated, a psychiatrist, very happy uh, to hear a lot of folks on Twitter, yes, but a lot of uh, credible folks on Twitter, physicians, talk about their own journey, their own diagnoses. And so we really have to look at any policy uh, that is disincentivizing physicians or again, any other health professional getting the help uh, that they need. Um, and again, stigma is still there. It's uh, there across the board, perhaps even more so in a couple of communities, communities of color and the physician community. Uh, so I believe, um, I am hopeful, uh, but we will have to make sure we will have to be intentional we will have to be intentional about a lot of conversations as we get on the other side of this and mental health care in general, that infrastructure that I talked about um, at the beginning of our conversation, and then particularly in uh, the physician community uh, will need to be at the top of the list. You just had a great panel on burnout. Again, pre-COVID-19, we were seeing issues of burnout. We were seeing um, increasing rates of physician suicide, increasing rates of depression and anxiety. And we have to make sure we are having uh, conversations in their full context and making sure we support uh, those who ask uh, for help. And, and, and almost getting uh, back to the obesity conversation because you not blame uh, the, the, the individual. When we first started to hear about physician burnout, the conversation was around physician, if you just eat right, get more sleep, exercise, you know, this burnout thing will go away. And clearly, and you heard from uh, the previous panel, it's about systems solutions to burnout. We will need systems solutions to obesity, actually really the health and wellness of everyone in this country with really a lot of stakeholders involved. You are president of the American Medical Association at the, at the outset of this pandemic. How would you characterize the U.S. response and what do you see as the biggest mistake we made? Well, I would say uh, when you look at our response in relation to other responses, uh, we were a delayed. You know, the first issue that came up and really one of the earlier issues that the AMA uh, talked about was PPE, that personal protective equipment. And we early on uh, called on the administration to quickly invoke and not just invoke the act, but make sure that it's implemented uh, to make sure uh, that those on the front line had the equipment uh, that they need. Uh, I think people have heard this um, 
over and over. So what I'm about to say is not new, but we still don't have uh, the testing strategy that we need. You know, testing strategy includes surveillance and diagnostic and making sure that testing is equitably available, easily accessible. You know, we have to, in general, invert the burden. Sometimes our, our systems and our interventions are so uh, difficult uh, to navigate. And I think those of us on the system side, I will include myself in that, need to always uh, think about how to easily navigate the system. So, uh, you know, we um, still don't have the testing uh, strategy that we need. Um, we did not have the contact uh, tracing strategy that we need. And early on, um, we saw uh, that uh, COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. Some communities were collecting data, others were not. And that's why at the beginning of the pandemic, the AMA called on the CDC and HHS to begin to collect the data, but not only collect the data, to disseminate the data, but I can tell you that I think everyone uh, realizes that uh, we need uh, more uh, coordinated uh, strategy and needed a more coordinated strategy in all of this, uh, getting the equipment that we need, our testing uh, strategy, uh, making sure that we could quickly deploy uh, resources to where they were needed, and most of all, making sure we had good data, reliable data. Uh, that actually was coordinated and, and uh, consistent across states. Um, you know, at times during this pandemic, it's been very uh, difficult to compare uh, even regions or even um, counties within states because we did not have a standardized level of data collection. So uh, we certainly will do and must do an after action review uh, when we get on the other side of this pandemic, but certainly there are things that we know we can do right now. Americans, of course, are looking to President Trump and health officials to inform them about the pandemic. Do you trust what President Trump and the heads of the CDC, HHS, and other health agencies are saying? Well, from the beginning, I can tell you the American Medical Association wanted to be a credible source of information. We know there's so much disinformation out there in both traditional media and social media. So we uh, wanted to be that credible source of consistent um, information. And in fact, again, as I mentioned earlier, um, I gave that national address to talk about the need for credible information, to uh, talk about the need uh, to uh, de-link, if you will, politics and public health. Uh, because in my experience as a public health director, uh, the people in this country can handle the truth. Uh, they want us to, as public health officials, as, as leaders, um, we should be about uh, telling the truth, saying what we know, and also being candid about what we don't know, and then saying, but here's what we're going to do to address any gaps in information. So that's uh, where we have been at the American Medical Association. We continue to call on our elected officials to be transparent. Uh, to ensure that there is no political interference in data and the science and data uh, collection. Um, and we will insist on that transparency as we move forward um, when we make recommendations uh, to our patients.
Well, this has been a great conversation and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're out of time, but really appreciate you being with us, Dr. Patrice Harris. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.